Good evening. You are listening to KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 o'clock, and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. Tonight, we begin our newscast with NPR News Headlines and the California Report, followed by regional weather and the local news. Then, Keith Porter interviews Nevada County Public Health Officer Dr. Scott Kellerman, and we'll close with an essay by Molly Fisk. For their support, KVMR would like to thank Mountain Recreation, locally owned since 2000, retailing seasonal recreation gear, including winter outerwear, skis, snowboards, also gear for seasonal or day rentals. Mountain Recreation is open daily on East Main Street in Grass Valley. M-T-N-R-E-C dot com. And Meze Eatery, family-owned organic conscious foods on Mill Street in Grass Valley. Offering Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cuisine using locally farmed ingredients for daily scratch-made pitas, falafel, baba ganoush, hummus, and salads. Online pre-order recommended. M-E-Z-E Eatery. Here are today's NPR News headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Georgia freshman Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene has been voted off the two House committees she sits on over past remarks espousing debunked conspiracy theories and her support of threats against Democrats. Green said earlier she regrets some words of the past, though she did not specifically apologize for her rhetoric prior to being elected in November. Green says she is a, quote, very regular American who posted conspiracy theories about the group QAnon and other sources before she began campaigning for Congress. Some House Republicans broke ranks in the 230 to 199 vote. A House panel heard testimony today about the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, an attack carried out by pro-Trump extremists trying to prevent Congress from certifying electoral college votes. NPR's Brian Naylor reports lawmakers talked about legislation to combat domestic terrorism but failed to reach a consensus. At a hearing call to examine the threat of domestic terrorism, witnesses warned what happened on January 6th will resonate for years to come. Elizabeth Newman, a former Homeland Security official in the Trump administration, says right-wing extremist groups see January 6th as a victory and an inspiration. Sadly, I do believe that we will be fighting domestic terrorism that has its roots and inspiration points from January 6th for the next 10 to 20 years. The chairman of the House Homeland Security panel, Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson, says he expects there will be agreement on legislation to combat domestic terrorism, but the panel did not get into specific proposals. Brian Naylor, NPR News. Johnson & Johnson has applied to the Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 vaccine. The FDA next is expected to hold a public meeting of outside advisors within a few weeks and get their recommendation. Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine is on track to be the the third one cleared by the FDA for use in the U.S. It is a single-dose vaccine, unlike the others that require two doses. President Biden says he will end support for Saudi Arabia's military offensive in Yemen and halt the withdrawal from U.S. troops in Germany. Those were just a couple of headlines from the new president's foreign policy speech today at the State Department. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Biden is telling State Department employees that diplomacy is back. He's tapped a career foreign service officer to try to resolve the war in Yemen, and he says he's working closely with partners to try to reverse a military coup in Myanmar, also known as Burma. The Burmese military should relinquish power they have seized 
release the advocates and activists and officials they have detained. He's held out the possibility of more sanctions. Biden is also speaking out about Russia, which jailed a key opposition figure this week. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 332 points. The Nasdaq rose 167 points. The S&P was up 41 points. This is NPR. One of the world's largest stock and commodity exchange groups, Atlanta-based Intercontinental Exchange, posted $2 billion in profits last year. Member station WABE in Atlanta, Alex Helmick, explains how the company thrived during the pandemic. Intercontinental Exchange, known as ICE, owns the New York Stock Exchange, among many other trading markets. Its founder and CEO, Jeffrey Sprecher, is married to former Georgia U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler, who also used to be an ICE executive. In short, the company says it has been doing very well during the pandemic. Stock and commodity exchanges saw a lot of buying and selling and fluctuations in prices during 2020. When that happens, the marketplaces ICE owns make money either way, cashing in on fees. Over the last 12 months, ICE's stock price has outperformed the Standard & Poor's Index. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick in Atlanta. A judge says U.S. officials downplayed climate change impacts and other environmental costs through the expansion of a massive coal mine near the Montana-Wyoming border. In a ruling this week, the judge contending under former President Trump, officials played up the economic benefits of the Spring Creek mine expansion while failing to consider society-wide impacts of climate change. Spring Creek is Montana's largest coal mine. Biden has called on federal agencies to account for the full cost of emitting greenhouse gases. And environmentalists say they'll be eyeing the case to see what actions the new administration might take. Crude oil futures prices closed higher, oil ending the session up 54 cents a barrel to settle at 56.23 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. The consulting firm McKinsey has agreed to a $573 million settlement with California and several other states for its role in fueling the nation's opioid crisis. California Attorney General Javier Becerra was among 47 prosecutors across the country who investigated the influential firm for its role helping companies like OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma boost profits. Our investigations turned up some pretty credible evidence that I believe led McKinsey to say, better to address this now than to wait and go to court. And we hope that that will be the case with other companies, the machine, the opioids machine that played a role in creating this crisis. McKinsey issued a statement noting that the settlement contains no admission of wrongdoing or liability. California will receive almost $60 million from the settlement, and Becerra says that money is going to be used to address the damage caused by opioids. Here in the Bay Area, San Francisco's school board president is calling a lawsuit filed against the district by the city petty and embarrassing. The city maintains that the district lacks a plan to safely reopen public schools during the pandemic. KQED's Katie Orr has more. San Francisco City Attorney Dennis Herrera says the district is dragging its feet despite multiple health departments saying schools can safely reopen with precautions. The school district and the Board of Education seem to have no plan for how or when in-person instruction will begin for any of its students. School Board President Gabriela Lopez says Herrera and Mayor London Breed are playing politics with the suit. 
We have made progress while the city and county have failed to provide the necessary tools for our city to safely return, like testing and vaccines. She says everyone wants schools to reopen and that this is embarrassing for the city. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Meanwhile, the head of the San Francisco Teachers Union is calling the lawsuit divisive. Susan Solomon is president of the United Educators of San Francisco. She says the suit is an attack on the district. I am shocked that they would do this. I am shocked. It is a major distraction from the work that we are busy doing to try to reopen schools. Solomon says the union is in frequent talks with the district and is getting closer to an agreement on when and how teachers would return to the classroom. She says the city needs to help with that process, not get in the way. Well, as new coronavirus cases and hospitalizations continue to fall, the Biden administration is working with the state to open two new vaccination sites in California. KQED's Laura Clivens has more. The sites will be at the Oakland Coliseum and California State University, Los Angeles. Governor Newsom said the locations were chosen intentionally. Equity is the call of this moment. The reason this site was chosen was the framework of making sure that communities that are often left behind are not left behind. They're prioritized in terms of the administration of these vaccines. Newsom said the state will not reallocate vaccine doses from elsewhere. Rather, the federal government will add additional ones, up to 6,000 a day. The sites are slated to open in two weeks and will be co-run by the federal and state government. And Newsom said people from the community will be hired to work there. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. PG&E is facing new conditions on its federal probation, prompted by the company's suspected role in starting a deadly fire in Shasta County last fall. KQED's Dan Brecky reports. U.S. District Judge William Alsop has proposed requiring PG&E to consider the presence of potentially dangerous trees near power lines when it considers wildfire safety power shutoffs. Alsop suggested the new probation conditions after last September's Zog fire near Redding, which killed four people. Cal Fire investigators have focused on a pine tree that loomed over PG&E power lines as the potential cause of the fire. The utility says the tree had been marked for removal but left standing. The utility turned off power in parts of 15 counties at the time the blaze started, but not to the area of the Zog fire. Also, we'll decide on new probation conditions later this month. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care on the web at chcf.org voices. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. As many of you know, California has some of the highest housing costs in the country. But two Bay Area lawmakers say they have one solution. As KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports, they want the state to build social housing, housing that's publicly funded and affordable for everyone. 
Assembly members Alex Lee of San Jose and Buffy Wicks of Oakland introduced the Social Housing Act earlier this week. It would create a statewide housing authority to build and manage housing that's available to not just the poorest residents, but to middle-income people as well. Here's Assembly Member Lee. We are going to become the developer. We're going to become the people that literally build and maintain the housing, and that's going to be so key, right? Any revenue that comes from it isn't just go back to shareholders or stockholders, but it actually goes back into keeping rents low and keeping the places really well maintained. Tom Bannon, the CEO of the California Apartment Association, says his organization is all for the idea. He says the real roadblocks to affordable housing are lengthy approvals and restrictions on apartments. I think that they'll run into the same obstacles that the private sector runs into. But uh, if we get another ally to assist us in building additional housing, particularly for working class families, hey, we will embrace it. Progressives across the country, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have been pushing for social housing as a way to guarantee housing as a right. Shanti Singh is co-chair of the San Francisco chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. It really is like a big, bold step forward. It hopefully will become a lab for all sorts of new models that are proven to be successful in other places that we haven't tried in California. Details of the bill are expected to be further fleshed out in the next few months. For The California Report, I'm Erin Baldessari. And that is The California Report for this Thursday, February 4th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Make sure to check out and subscribe to our podcast. There, you'll find the latest on the dispute over mandating hero pay for grocery store workers from Long Beach to Oakland, plus more state news. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening. Taking a look at local weather... For the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight, clear with a low around 36. For Friday, sunny with a high near 59. For the Truckee and Lake Tahoe region, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 17 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 47. And for Sacramento, tonight, patchy fog after 4 a.m., otherwise clear with a low around 35. Friday, patchy fog before 10 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 62. And this afternoon, shortly after 1 p.m., the Nevada County Regional Dispatch Center received several calls of a subject walking in the middle of Alta Sierra Drive with two small children. The reporting parties advised that the adult was possibly under the influence. Several deputies responded to the area and ultimately made contact with the involved parties. Within minutes, deputies on the scene advised that this was now an officer-involved shooting. At 4 p.m. this afternoon, the Nevada County District Attorney's Office released a statement. Quote, The District Attorney's Office will be investigating the shooting to determine if the force used was justified and lawful. Members of the Nevada County Sheriff's Office had contact with a female adult who was armed with a knife. During the incident, one deputy fired his service weapon at the female adult, and she died as a result. Close quote. Coming up next, Keith Porter interviews Nevada County Public Health Officer, Dr. Scott Kellerman. I'm Keith Porter for KVMR News, and I'm talking today with Dr. Scott Kellerman, who is Nevada County's new public health officer. So, Scott, welcome to the KVMR, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. 
Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. I get a lot of phone calls all day and sometimes at night, so maybe this will clear up some of the, um, the messaging. Well, let's hope so. Um, and, and Dr. Scott Kellerman, you have a background that seems to me to be almost ideally suited to this new job as our public health officer. And uh, we're going to explore that in some detail on a show next week. You're going to be my guest on The Sages Among Us on KVMR, and we'll talk a lot about your background, your experience, uh, why you do what you do. But today, uh, let's talk about your role as a public health officer, the duties. And, and I have a first question. I, I know the public health officer, you are a physician, but you work for the public health uh, organization in the county, and there's a director, uh, Jill Blake. What, what's your relationship between uh, you and the director and the other rest of the staff at the public health department? Well, from a personal perspective, I sit in awe. Jill and her staff are working day and night to not only protect this um, community from uh, infections of all varieties, but also hopefully to get ahead of the curve with respect to this COVID-19 virus with immunizations. They're smart, they're dedicated, they're hardworking, and they're focused. Uh, You couldn't have a better staff. So I I sit and listen, kind of sit at the feet and let the wisdom uh, flow down on me. But you're also the medical expert, right? You're the guy that brings that knowledge into the equation so that we uh, hopefully find the right solutions, right? Uh, Yeah, I've had a lot of experience in public health. You mentioned I've spent a lot of time in Africa and lived in Nepal, and I've had a public health degree in and in Africa, there was Ebola right next door, and, and, and of course, malaria and outbreaks of dysentery and a variety of diseases there. And so I'm very familiar with outbreaks. This one's been pretty devastating for our county, and uh, mainly job loss and, and people in, in a lot of despair and, and depression. So the collateral damage to this virus is not just uh, physical illness. It's you know, psychological and social and some spiritual challenges, too. Absolutely. The New York Times publishes pretty much daily uh, statistics on the uh, on the virus, and Nevada County is actually doing better than most of California and better than, uh, than a lot of the nation. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it's devastating, as you say, and uh, a very difficult situation for everybody. Um, so your role, uh, you're obviously advising the, uh, the the things as they happen from a medical perspective. Uh, everybody, of course, is interested in vaccinations and the progress, the problems. Uh, you know, how do you make appointments? We seem to have messages coming from many disparate sources telling us to uh, uh, to talk about this with our uh, primary care physician, of course, or uh, go to one of the pharmacies uh, that's that's doing vaccinations, or uh, be sure you're in touch with the 211 organ organization in our county, which uh, provides information. What do you suggest people do, Scott, to cut through all of that to really make it, uh, to, to be comfortable that they're in the right process? Uh, great question, Keith. Uh, the answer tends to be a little obtuse right now. Uh, there's four streams of immunizations that come into this county. The end of our hospital has a stream that comes from a multi-county entity because they're in multiple counties. They have a separate stream of you know, access to immunizations. Uh, Chapaday gets their immunizations through um, Indian Health. Pharmacies are getting a, another stream of immunizations, and they're tasked with immunizing the skilled nursing facilities and the assisted living. And then there's the county. And the county doesn't have staff to immunize everybody, so we're making collaborative relationships with a variety of groups. For instance, Docomo's. If you happen to go see Dave over at Docomo's, he's, he's trying to immunize 180 people a day three days a week, and he's taking over the uh, Old Public Brewery, that location below SPD. 
Uh, Dr. Hicks is very involved with immunizations. Our friends in the federal qualified health centers, uh, Western Sierra and Sierra family, are going to be incredibly proactive, great partners in immunizations, as is Tahoe Forest Hospital. Public Health has done is although they do give immunizations at public health, um, we have these other collaborative relationships and with primary care practitioners similarly to deliver immunizations. There will be um, a site available called My Turn, which you can check on the Nevada County Public Health website. You can sign up, but it's not been activated for our county. It will be activated uh, for our county within, I would think, within a week. And then you, you will know where you fit in kind of the hierarchy of immunizations and wh when and where you can, you can be immunized. Uh, just go to our website and uh, it says COVID-19. Click on that and it'll lead you to uh, my turn. It's, you can put in your demographics uh, right now, but um, you won't get any information back. It's got to be activated first uh, for our county. But that's the best way and it's very intuitive. Okay, so it's mynevadacounty.com and go to the COVID site there and, um, and you can sign right. up. And uh, Scott, I know that um, Sutter Health uh, in, in our region has uh, announced that they're making vaccinations available to people, I think, 65 or at least 75 and over, maybe 65 and over, pretty much uh, w at your will to sign up. Uh, but you have to go to Yuba City or Roseville to do that. Should people stay in Nevada County and wait for the process here? Is that best for them? Uh, it's a real great question. Most places where you go up, you sign a, a document to say you were returned for the immunization. And so we highly encourage if you've been immunized in this county to stay in this county. You're not supposed to be taking vacations anyway for your second immunization. Uh, if you go down there, you'd, you know, they will encourage you. They will save immunizations for your next time, the same way we do here. You don't show, you schedule for that visit. Uh, Pfizer vaccine is stored at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. We cool it down beforehand. We draw it up before you get there. And if you don't show because you went to Yuba City and you want to get an immunization here, Yuba City's left with the vaccine. They scramble in finding uh, an alternate candidate for immunizations. I, there are some counties that are a little ahead of us, and we're ahead of other counties. The smaller ones, they're able to zip through pretty quickly. Like Sierra County, the larger counties are a little behind us. We had a huge immunization campaign, immunized almost all the K through 12 teachers in our county uh, last Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at NU Gym. Incredible turnout. People came in a little apprehensive of a needle and left with huge smiles uh, immunized. We probably immunized, we probably given over a little over 10,000 doses of uh, COVID vaccine in our county so far. Um, and what we do is, is we get allocations from the state. They're very fair in their allocations, um, predicated on your population. I'm not so sure why other counties get more than us, but I don't think that's true. One thing we have that other counties don't have is we have a preponderance of those over 65. 30% of our population is above 65, compared to Sacramento of 14%. Um, and LA of 13%. So they'll move through this. 65 plus category a lot quicker than we will good so our numbers will come up for those of us in that age bracket fairly soon we're hopeful right uh, we're very hopeful the, the bottleneck is 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 not uh distribution sites here it's not uh providers uh the bottleneck is is vaccine right more vaccine we're immunize more people 
Well, uh, Dr. Scott Kellerman, you have an op-ed today in the, uh, on Humanet online, which is an interesting uh, plea for um, collaboration and um, understanding, and uh, I think it's a great piece. I hope people get a chance to read it. And I also note that Ubinet now is going to start every Thursday at noon for 30 minutes maximum, and they're going to have a Zoom meeting uh, talking about the status of uh, COVID-19 and vaccine distribution in Nevada County. So anyone who wants to can register for that Zoom webinar, or it will be on YouTube. So people can get more information there on a weekly basis. And I'm sure uh, you're going to be uh, finding ways to communicate with all of us uh, uh, through, through this morass of a very, very complicated and critical situation. You know, I'm hoping when we look back on this virus, we're not going to see a pandemic and kind of squabbling. We'll see uh, collaboration and respect for our, our fellow man and and, uh, and compassion. That's what I want to see. And that's what we, I think, you at KVMR promote. Thanks, Keith. Well, Dr. Scott Kellerman, our relatively new, one month into it, a public health officer in Nevada County, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, we're very appreciative of the work that you're all doing. And take care. Thank you, Keith. That was Dr. Scott Kellerman being interviewed by KVMR's Keith Porter. Coming up next, this week's edition of Bravehearts, followed by an essay by Molly Fisk. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. Hello, everybody. This is Betty Louise, and I am here with my friend and colleague, Darren, who is a peer support specialist at Insight Respite Center. How do you connect with the homeless community, or is it just a matter of if they show up? I would say there's about 19, 20, about 20%, you know, of our, our guests are homeless. And um, there are people that I see, you know, in the community, they get to us through behavioral health. You know, a lot of them are clients through behavioral health. And if they are appropriate for our program, they're referred in. You know, some of them might be just staying there while a housing opportunity opens up and they need to have some support for that. Some homeless people, where we come valuable is they have no idea how to live in a house, some of these people, none. You know, how to clean up after themselves, how to prepare, how to be considerate of others in a household. When they come to us, they are supported in these issues, especially if that's in the treatment plan. This person does not know how to live in a house and they are gently supported, you know? It's like, hey, this is how we do dishes, you know? This is what we do after dinner. This is how we, we're gonna rinse our plates and put them in the, you know, simple things that right. some people living out in the wilderness have become a little wild about, you know? So they need some help, you know, readjusting you know, what it's like to live in four walls. So we do that. There's a guy that, you know, just said the other day, he goes, I have the confidence that I can live with other people and thank you very much. Mm. And was this one yeah. of the homeless guys that arrived? Yeah, oh. yeah, it's one of my favorite. Meeting people where they're at is a large part of what a peer support specialist does. We do not expect somebody that, you know, if they come through and their doctor has a treatment plan and they say, oh, this is kind of the goals that we would like to do. We're not going to push them towards that goal, that end point. 
it's like, where are you in this? You know, it's kind of like, and I can recognize where people are in their alcoholism state. You know, are they at that point where they're at the, the acceptance? Are they at that point where they are ready to move on and give up? You know, there's, a, there's a lot of different points before a person gets sober that have to be hurdled over. What I envision is I see this vicious cycle. You're starting to get better, and then you go back, and there are so many hurdles. Yeah, you know, there are people that I that come through that are of the kind that are absolutely dedicated to being homeless in the woods. That's their life. That's what they want to do. And to meet them where there are is just fascinating because I can get it. I understand it. You know, I understand. I personally live in a van. And the reason is, is because bipolar people need a lot of alone time. People don't get that. It, it interferes with our relationships and that sort of thing. It's, it's vital for us to have alone time to collect ourselves and to, you know, be able to reapproach the world. There are times when I've, I've gotten off work where it's just like, I don't even want to see the clerk to go get gas. I just want to go straight to the woods and be alone. Mm -hmm. And I do that. And it brings me a lot of peace. And I, do, you know, I, I get that community, you know, that to be able to step out your door and be in the woods, have deer right next to you and, and watch wildlife. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful way to live. Yeah, at the same time, I'm very much part of civilization. I, I work in four walls and, you know, I, I connect with people and I'm part of the community. It's so awesome that you shared that because there's just so many different ways for us to navigate through this craziness. It's like craziness right. out there. I mean, one of the things yeah. this guy said to me last week is because there's so much drama when you have a place. He goes, society is up your butt, you know, because... Yeah. <laughs> It's so true, though, isn't it? It's so true. It's like all of a sudden there's all these rules and things you have to pay attention to that you're used to right, right. talking to the birds and the deers about. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. This week, a friend of mine's dad died a man I'd been fond of whenever I saw him back in my 20s and 30s. He was 98, alert, still living at home. He got COVID from a caretaker, moved to a hospital when his oxygen numbers fell, and died there by himself after FaceTime conversations with kids and grandkids. My friend was 3,000 miles away, snowbound and minding his great-grandson, John. I got a little tangled up in the fact that this one-year-old was his namesake, the sweetness and irony of one John leaving as another is learning to walk. My sorrow hides in the details where it thinks I won't find it. The next day, one of my clients died, but not of COVID, also in a hospital, alone. 
She went to the ER on Friday with stomach pain. That turned out to be a tumor on her pancreas, and she was dead by Saturday morning. It was shockingly fast, and my grief took the form of obsessing over how careful she'd been not to get the virus, only to die of something else, and also what was going to happen to her dog, Homer. Meanwhile, I've been bitching to myself about not being able to go into grocery stores. After 10 months, I'm used to delegating the main shopping trips to kind friends. What I miss, desperately, is the spontaneous dropping in for things I suddenly need, like vanilla or the track light bulb somebody bought me in the wrong size. At first, this restraint had a kind of charm, and I cheerfully borrowed garlic from neighbors. Then, for a while, I did go in, but only the minute the store opened and only for one or two things, which meant I had to wait till tomorrow and get up early. That made the errand annoying rather than spontaneous. Now, fear of new COVID variants has stopped me completely, and I drive past stores grumbling about how full the parking lots are. Me, who didn't like grocery shopping in the first place. That's what's fascinating about these times. So much prolonged change and how it upends us. I don't miss the groceries, I miss my own agency. Plus, there's something restful about browsing in stores. Your mind can relax. Your imagination can come out to play. Maybe I should make mushroom bisque for dinner. Gosh, I'd look dreadful in that sweater. Or who doesn't need a beautiful blue dish towel? Along with going to the movies, this pursuit gave me some mental downtime, and I miss it. Believe me, I realize most of us have had a nutty amount of privilege, and I do try to envision myself standing in a bread line in Moscow in 1939 as a kind of balance but it's hard to maintain. After almost a year of being afraid of invisible contagion, I'm a lot better at washing my hands and making supper with what's left in the larder. I don't wear earrings because they catch on my masks. I'm able to ask for help, but I'm no better than I ever was at waiting patiently to see what happens next. I hope I never get used to hearing people have died. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. Tune in tomorrow night for Felton Pruitt's interview with musician Terry Allen, who organized Food for Love, a virtual concert on February 13th, benefiting New Mexico's food banks. The event features Jackson Brown, The Chicks, Lyle Lovett, David Byrne, Steve Earle, and many more. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30. If you'd like to hear it again, it's available on our website, and wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, it's Money Matters with Mark Cunaberti, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. Have a good evening.